We're going to continue our study of the book of Jude tonight, so we'll open up there again to the book of Jude. Jude verse, well, I've got verses 4 through 16 projected. Uh, I think I am just going to read verse 4. Kind of went back and forth on how how best to handle uh, this section, but we'll just take verse 4 tonight, and we'll just read verse 4 tonight. Uh, So you'll see it all projected, but but just one verse is what we'll read together. So Jude, uh, verse 4 is our text. This is what we read there. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's ask God's blessing on our study of His Word tonight. Father in heaven, we want to be people who stand on every promise of Your Word. Help us then to understand Your Word tonight and to apply it to our lives, that we might stand on it. Lord, help me to do my job well. I have learned that no amount of preparation can substitute for Spirit-filled preaching, and so I do ask that you would help me to preach in the power of the Spirit. Help us also to listen in the power of the Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. People of God, I want to remind you of what we talked about last week when we looked at Jude verse 3. Uh, When theologians speak about the church today, they'll often distinguish between the church militant and the church triumphant. The church triumphant, of course, refers to the church as she exists in heaven. There she's made up of believers who fought the good fight, who finished the race, who've kept the faith, and who've received the crown of victory in glory The church militant refers to the church that we're a part of. The church as she exists on earth, it refers to the church as she's engaged in the good fight of faith and as she is under attack and advances slowly but surely through the enemy territory that is this world. So again, there's there's one church, but that one church exists in two places. She exists in heaven as the church triumphant, She exists on earth as the church militant. And once again, I remind you that the fact that the church on earth is called the church militant ought not be lost on us because it reminds us that on this side of glory, we are soldiers in a spiritual struggle, a spiritual battle that is taking place between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, right? We are soldiers in a battle that is taking place between the God of truth who has redeemed us and called us his own and the father of lies who has been defeated on the cross and is now seeking desperately to take as many down in defeat with him as he can. The third verse of Jude that we looked at last week, that serves as the rallying cry for the church militant. There Jude says, Beloved, 
Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And again, Jude there is mobilizing the troops. He's getting God's people ready for battle. As we turn our attention now to verse 4, we see why God's people must be ready for battle. We see why Jude calls us to contend for the faith. It's because certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So Jude tells us in verse four, doesn't he? The reason we must contend for the faith is because there are people contending against the faith. The reason we must contend for the faith is because, well, in this world and in the church, there is an enemy, an enemy. Tonight, we're going to think about this enemy as Jude sets the enemy forth here in verse four. And what we'll see are two simple truths about the enemy. We'll see that he's deceptive and we'll see that he's doomed. He's deceptive and he's doomed. So first, the enemy is deceptive. And the enemy's deceptive ways are captured in two places or in two phrases in verse four. We see it first in the opening clause where Jude writes, for certain men have crept in unnoticed. That phrase crept in unnoticed comes from one single Greek word, parasedusan, and that one single Greek word literally means to creep in unnoticed. You could not get a better translation than the one given to us here in our Bibles. Okay, as one scholar says, this Greek word is a secret and sinister word. In ancient Greek literature, this Greek word was used to describe one man's secret return to a country that he had been banished from. This word reminds me of my greatest moment ever on a baseball field. I didn't have a lot of them. There aren't many to choose from. I was playing center field, ninth grade, guy had a massive lead off, and I snuck in unnoticed from center field, and the pitcher turned around and threw it to me, and he looked at me like, where did you come from? And we tagged him out, we picked him off. I crept in unnoticed. Anyway, this is what Jude says the enemy does. He creeps into the church unnoticed. And we might note, well, this is, this is one of the enemy's favorite tricks. This is one of the enemy's go-to methods in attacking the faith once for all delivered to the saints. He does it, he does it from the inside. Galatians 2 verse 4 says, This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. 2 Peter 2 verse 1 says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who secretly bring in destructive heresies. 
Okay, this is one of the enemy's favorite methods of attacking the church. He, he deceptively creeps in unnoticed. He quietly and secretly and deceptively takes his place among the people of God. He poses as one of us. He, he sings our songs. He eats at our potlucks. And sometimes, sometimes if he or she is real, real good, they'll find themselves teaching our children or preaching in our pulpits. And yet Jude's clear, isn't he? These people who, who sneak in unnoticed, they're not of us. <laughs> they, they, are not, they are not true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look how Jude describes these people in verse four. He describes them as being ungodly and he describes them as being people who deny our only Lord and Master Jesus Christ. Now they don't come out and say they deny our only Lord and Master Jesus Christ, of course, no. These people, they, they creep in unnoticed. That means they know how to give the right answers. They know how to say the right things to the elders of the church, but they deny Jesus by the way they go about living their lives. They deny Jesus as they refuse to submit to his word. So the enemy is, is deceptive. He works from within the church. He knows how to, how to be found among us without actually being one of us. His deceptive nature is seen again in our text. You can see it in the word pervert. I, I literally could have titled this sermon Creeps and Perverts, right? The enemy crept in unnoticed and he perverts the grace of God. I didn't do that, right? I'm not that smart until I'm standing up here, but I could have, right? You can see that in the middle of verse four. That word pervert comes from the Greek word metatithemi. Tithemi means to put something in its place. The word meta has found its way into our English language. It means to change or to alter or to go beyond something. When you put meta and tithemi together, it means to change or to alter or to go beyond what was put in place. This too is a favorite tactic and method of the enemy. He creeps in and he perverts the truth. He, he takes what's in place and he alters it, he distorts it, he twists it ever so slightly until he successfully led God's people off the narrow road that leads to life and onto the broad road that leads to destruction. And so note, note well, according to Jude here, the, the enemy doesn't come in making wholesale changes to our doctrine and our belief and our vocabulary. No, he takes what's already in place and he just, he just, he just twists it. He just distorts it, he just, he just perverts it just enough, just enough to get us onto that broad road that leads to death. Now Jude tells us exactly how the truth was being perverted in his day. He says that these certain men who've crept into the church, 
pervert the grace of God into sensuality. I prefer the NIV's translation. I think it makes a little more sense and it gets the point. The NIV says these people pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality. That's what they do. They pervert the grace of God, they take the grace of God, and they use it as a license for immorality. Their message was, hey, God is gracious, so um, it really doesn't matter how you live. God forgives sin, so by all means, my friend, let, let sin abound in your life. That was their message. Now you notice, don't you, there, there, is, there is truth in that message. God is gracious. God does forgive sins. Those things are gloriously, wondrously true in Christ. But that, that's not the whole story of God's grace in Christ. Now listen to what Paul writes in Titus 2. He says, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Paul there gives us the complete picture of God's grace in Christ. It It doesn't affirm us in our sin. It rescues us from our sin and from the devastation and damnation that our sin brings. God's grace is is comprehensive like that. The false teachers left that part out. The false teachers preached a different message, a different gospel, which as we know was no gospel at all. They said God's acceptance of sinners gives you an excuse to go on sinning. That's a false teaching. That's a message that leads to death because it leaves out repentance, which is a necessary component of saving faith. So this is the way the truth is being perverted in Jude's day. Since God is gracious, live however you want. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Certainly the truth is still perverted like this in our own day. The LGBTQ movement, as it exists in the church, I would say, perverts the grace of God in a similar way. The LGBTQ gospel as it's found in the church essentially says Jesus has come to affirm who you are rather than rescue you from who you are. It's it's the same sort of perversion. But we might also recognize this isn't the only way that the enemy perverts the truth in the church. Just just think for a moment of, of Paul's letter to the Galatians. There too, in Paul's letter to the Galatians, we see we see a perversion of the truth. Only in Galatia, the perversion wasn't that God's grace gives you a license to sin. The perversion was that God's grace isn't enough to fully cover your sins. No, if you want real, true forgiveness and peace with God, you need to add something to the work of Christ. You need to believe in Christ and be circumcised. By the way, the perversion of the gospel in the book of Galatians is very, very similar to the perversion of the gospel in the Roman Catholic Church today. The Roman Catholic Church, too, says that Christ alone isn't enough. You need to be baptized. 
You need to partake the mass. You need to pay your penance, right? There's no assurance in Roman Catholic theology. It's the same perversion of the gospel. If you would read the Roman Catholic catechism, you can look at the question, is it faith alone uh, save us? And it says no, (laughs) no. All right, we see the same perversion of the gospel in Galatia that we see in the Roman Catholic Church. And then we think, we think of another perversion of the gospel we see today. It's, it's, it's the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel essentially tells us that God is a great, you know, a great genie in the sky. Or maybe, maybe, maybe a, great, a great slot machine in the sky. Right? The, you put the quarters of your faithfulness and your prayers and your obedience in, into that slot machine and God will dispense material blessings upon you. Now the truth is, God will bless the faithful. That's a gospel truth. Not in ways we expect and certainly not to the degree He will bless the faithful in glory. Uh, but, but, but that is a truth. God will bless the faithful. And yet the prosperity gospel calls people to trust in Christ, promising that if they trust in Christ, he'll make them healthy and he'll make them wealthy and he'll make them prosperous. And so people in prosperity gospel churches, they believe in Christ because of what they hope Christ will give them and not because they believe that Christ died for their sins and won their salvation through his blood on the cross. Okay, the message isn't always the same. But the perversion of the truth is, our, 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 our enemy is deceptive that way. He takes wonderful, glorious gospel truths and he distorts them and he changes them and he ruins them to lead God's people astray. So, so we have a deceptive enemy. He creeps into the church and he perverts the gospel. Now what does this, what does this mean for us? What do Jude's words here in verse 4 mean for us? Well, well, these words ought to cause us to be at least a little bit cautious about taking everything we read and say, the banner. Don't ask me how I really feel. Christianity Today, or in some other Christian publication, to the bank of our faith, right? Because the fact of the matter is, some people in the church are imposters. Some people in the church are doing Satan's bidding. Some people in the church are taking what is good and right and true and twisting it into something that is altogether false and damnable. This is why John writes in 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. How do you test the spirits? You test the spirits against the word of God. You you, you test the spirits by being like those Bereans whom we read about in Acts. They heard Paul and Silas speaking in their synagogue and were told they, they brought out their Bibles and they examined the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. They heard what Paul was saying and they looked at their Bibles to say, yeah, that, that lines up. That makes sense. We, we ought to be people who, who do the same thing, right? This, this teacher over here says that if I serve God, I'll be healthy and wealthy and comfortable. Is that really what the scriptures say? This teacher over here says, you know, there's, there's no hell. Everyone's going to heaven. Is that really what the scriptures say? 
this teacher over here in this Christian Reformed church that I, that I moved next door to is, is saying that uh, I can be a follower of Christ and live in a same-sex relationship. Is that, is that really what the scriptures say? Indeed, we must, we must test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Of course, what Jude says here also means that, that we must contend for the faith. That's the great universal point made in this letter, right? In verse four, he's simply setting forth the reason we must contend for the faith. We need to contend for the faith because there are people, even in the church, who are actively contending against the faith. This is why we, we, we ought to be concerned about doctrine. It's why we ought to know what we believe and why we believe it. If we don't know what we believe and why we believe it, we're not gonna know when truth is even being attacked, right? It's also why, why pastors must undergo a rigorous examination process to be ordained in ministry because one of the enemy's favorite tactics is what? It's to infiltrate our ranks and attack from the inside. One of the most, what's the word I wanna use? One thing that has maybe despaired me the most since I've become a minister in the Christian Reformed Church, and I, and I have not seen it uh, in, in Classes Zealand, I've only been here a year, but, but Classes Zealand does a pretty good job, but it was, it was in a previous classes that I served. Um, we would have people being examined for ministry, and man, some of these examinations, were, they, were, they were bad. They were bad, and everybody knew they were bad. Everybody knew they were bad. What everyone didn't agree on is that we should vote no just because they were bad. For some people, there was no thought of voting no. For some of these pastors who had just given awful examinations and who were clearly not ready for the ministry, I witnessed some terrible ones, and yet the people passed with flying colors. I never voted yes, and, and others didn't as well, but, but there were enough people who did. Why? Because to fail them would be mean, of course. Being mean's the unforgivable sin in our denomination. And yet as I observe this and witness this, I'm like, have we forgot? Have we forgot that we are at war? And that one of the enemy's favorite tricks is to creep into the church and to do his work from the inside? Have we forgot that? deceptive that way. He's cunning and he's crafty. We must be ready. We must be courageous. We must at times be willing to vote no in those situations. Or say, speak up in other situations. But our enemy, he, he isn't only deceptive, he's, he's also doomed. Jude tells us that here as well. Jude makes this clear when he says, for, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Those are, uh, those are pretty intense words, aren't they? Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for condemnation. 
This is a, a reference to the doctrine of reprobation. What's reprobation? Reprobation is the negative side of the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election states that God has in eternity past, out of the mass of lost and sinful humanity, chosen a people for salvation in Christ. We don't have a problem with that side too much. The doctrine of reprobation is the other side of that. The doctrine of reprobation refers to God's decision to pass others by and to leave them in the misery which they have freely plunged themselves into. Now note well, uh, the doctrine of reprobation doesn't mean God has caused anyone to sin. It doesn't mean God has caused anyone to be an unbeliever. It simply means that God has chosen to leave some in their sin and unbelief. He has, he has passed them by. He has chosen to give them justice for their sin rather than, rather than mercy. And that means these people that Jude speaks of, well, they are simply proving that God was correct in this sovereign decision he made in eternity past. Because who are these people? These people are godless. These people deny our only Lord and Master Jesus Christ. No doubt that is the mindset, the common denominator of all those who are designated for condemnation. They deny Jesus Christ. Listen, if you don't want to be designated for condemnation, don't deny Jesus Christ. Believe in him. Profess him. Serve him. It's that simple. So yes, God, God might have designated these people for destruction, but... They have no one to blame but themselves because they deny our only Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Anyway, the point we ought to take from this is that the enemy whom Jude is, is calling us to contend against, he's a, he's a doomed enemy. He will not win. His condemnation and destruction and defeat is not in doubt. No, Jude says, it, it was decreed long beforehand. And it reminds me here of, of what Martin Luther wrote about in the Song of Mighty Fortress is our God. Right? Martin Luther found courage in this truth, didn't he? He said, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. Why? For lo, his doom is sure. So it is for the false teachers who crept into the church unnoticed and who wage war against the faith. Jude here is telling the people of God, their doom is sure. Their doom has been foreordained. They think they're rebelling against God when in fact they're simply living out God's decree from the foundation of the world. And for those called to contend for the faith, this is, this is encouraging. We are contending against a doomed enemy. 
We are contending against an enemy who will not win. That truth ought to invigorate us, even as it invigorated Martin Luther. That truth should put pep in our step as we contend for the faith. That truth should cause us to stand firm on God's truth and to teach it boldly on Sundays in our sanctuary and in our Sunday school classrooms and in our homes to our children throughout the week. Yes, our enemy is deceptive. He is. But he's also doomed. He might take down a denomination here or there, but he won't take down the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. No way, no how. Christ's kingdom is forever. Christ's blood has not been shed and will not be shed in vain. And so we contend for the faith in the victory that Christ has won. And we look forward to the day when Christ will put all his enemies under his feet and when these people who are designated for condemnation receive their reward in full because they refuse to submit to our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the way in which your word makes us wise unto salvation in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the wisdom you have imparted to us tonight regarding deceptive and doomed enemies who have crept in unnoticed to the church. Lord, make us wise unto them and enable us to contend against them. For the glory of Jesus, it's in his name we pray. Amen.